Welcome to Going Off the Record. I'm Colin Williams, and this is where I talk with the executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, and changemakers working to make this world a little bit better every day. You'll hear their true stories, their failures, their successes, and most importantly, you'll learn what makes them tick. So let's get going off the record. Hey, everybody, it's Colin with another episode of Going Off the Record. I've got a good one today. I'm here with a good friend, Joe Diamond, the CEO of All Campus. Super psyched to have you, Joe. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. So you sort of know the ground rules. I told you that stuff. Let's just jump into the good things. Really excited to learn about the business and how you got here. And I know some of that story, but I think everybody else wants to hear it. But let's go back. Let's go back to the day. Where are you from? Tell us about where you grew up. Tell us about your family, what it was like, all that good stuff. I am from Canton, Ohio. I grew up one of six kids and I was the fifth of six kids, which I think has shaped me in a lot of ways because, you know, that's a middle child. And as my wife likes to say, I'm so middle, I had to share it with three other kids. And I definitely think that shaped me. You know, you weren't the baby, you were not. Anyway, four boys, two girls. My dad was an entrepreneur and struggled, but had some successes too. Definitely saw ups and downs, you know, when the economy tanked, it was something that actually impacted our lives. The business he was in was welding supply, gases, and those kind of things, sort of a, I guess, a blue collar industry. And yeah, I guess that's a little of the background. Very competitive in my family, especially among the siblings. All six of us were within eight years. And I think my parents pitted us against each other quite a bit. Well, you're not living up to what so-and-so is doing. And, and I think now, as a result, almost all of us have advanced degrees. One or two of us have PhDs. And I think there's a little bit of outdoing each other in that regard. And weirdly, I think we fought a ton as kids. I mean, a ton. And sometimes very physically. I had no problem beating up my sisters. But because I was mostly getting beaten up by my older brothers. And I will point out my sisters were older than me. So I felt like it was okay. And I cut that <laughs> off in about seventh grade. What's weird is we were fought all the time. And I think if we had judged it then, we, I would say we didn't think we got along. And weirdly, we got through it much better on the other side and get along incredibly well now. And I'm close with all my siblings. And I give my parents a lot of credit for that, which I think a lot of us were a bit critical of as kids, is how they pitted us against each other and how they raised us and, you know, was very much about efficiency and sort of just by when I was in first grade, my mom taught me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and put raisins in my paper bag lunch. And I was on my own ever since then, basically. And I've taught you everything I can teach you. you out to the world. And nickel for your milk. And that's all you need to get out the door every day. So yeah, very much. She got all of us to be really independent. And I think we all sort of bonded over that. That's amazing. So there's a bunch of things I want to dive into here. I mean, number one, six kids in eight years. Like this takes like the Irish twin thing. I <laughs> To your mom. God bless you. I don't yeah, even know. And anyone I saw her grazing, it was it was shocking that she pulled that off. And she was <laughs> very calm. And she deserves, you know, 95% of the credit for getting us where we are. I mean, she was really tenacious about keeping us on track and keeping us on task. This is amazing. So let's do a quick test. So you're one of six with five siblings, you said some of them have advanced degree. What do each of them do? Oh, so the oldest is business, second oldest is in business, and he's the one that I have the most history with. We worked together for 15 years. He got his MBA. My oldest sister is in higher ed, 
uh, similar to me, and she has a PhD. Uh, I think she did speech pathology and got a master's there. And then I think the PhD is in that. And then my oldest, the second oldest sister is got a PhD in psychology, also went to Florida, which is the same school I went to, University of Florida. She was there for 12 years, all the way through to her PhD in psychology. And she does real estate now, nothing to do with it, although I'm sure it helps her in some way. And then I have an MBA. And then my little brother, he's primarily a bartender. Yeah. Your little brother was the smartest of all of you. So yeah, to say the baby of the family went his own way. That's great. That's amazing. So I need to ask, growing up in Canton, are you guys huge football fans or was that not part of your life? It was a huge part of my childhood. Obviously having the Hall of Fame there, but just the Friday Night Lights was just a huge thing. I played football in high school, which seems like something you're required to do. And the team had... It was also a badge of honor. Like it just felt, it was like a lot of pride just being on the football team. But the biggest game that we attended had 17,000 students there. We played at Fawcett Stadium, which is the same stadium. They've now raised it, but it was the same stadium the Hall of Fame games were in. So it was just really exciting. And, you know, it was almost a college atmosphere on a Friday night. Before I played going, you know, in sixth, seventh, eighth grade, watching those guys play, it felt like I was at a professional event. So which high school did you go to? Glen Oak. Um, okay. which was the big high school for high school football was McKinley. McKinley um, yeah, and they had a long, long history. McKinley, Maslin, apparently were like among the first high school rivalries or, and they, I think, I don't know, somehow evolved from professional teams, the Tigers and the Bulldogs. There was even a great documentary called Go Tigers about that history. It's, I watched it. it. It's yeah. It's oh, you did? You saw yeah, the Tigers? yeah, I watched it. I mean, I remember, I don't know how I started hearing about Maslin. I don't know what it was, but Obviously, it's one of those storied programs like Permian, you know. Yes. But yeah, I remember watching the story and just thinking, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> so I actually never knew you played football. What position did you play? I was probably best as a wide receiver, but I played both ways because we didn't have a huge roster my senior year. Junior year, we were an awesome, like, top 10 type team, which I never saw the field. My senior year is a very different story. I think we ended up going four and six, and I, I got to play both ways. So receiver and DB mostly. Wow. All right. Well, yeah. so then you get a full ride to Florida. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I'm curious, how did you choose like going from Ohio to Florida? And it seems like your family had this almost a pipeline down there. How did you choose going? Well, yeah, down so the three oldest actually went all went to the same school. They went to UNC. And uh, my sister and I went to Florida. My little youngest went to Warren Wilson in North Carolina. Basically, my folks were very much pressed the idea of a big state school. I think in particular that it was a good value. And then also the South, they felt my mom went to UNC, my dad went to Duke. And so they encouraged, they thought the South was just a great thing to experience from Ohio. And now I've got some siblings, they live in Raleigh and yeah, so it sort of rubbed off. And I loved being in Florida, but I also love being in Chicago. It's just, it's nice to see different parts of the country. There are some folks I know who have basically never left here. <laughs> Elementary school, high school, college, even beyond certain schools. And it's, you know, there's, it's a big country. It's a big world. Right. So <laughs> it's, it's funny. My folks very much pushed us to go elsewhere and see other things. And now that I have kids of my own, I want them to be close. <laughs> like, yeah, go to Wisconsin or go to Michigan or something. Stay, stay nearby. <laughs> there is a lot of benefit in going and trying something different. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Interesting that your parents, you have a Duke, UNC. How did that work out? Or is one of, them, think, is one of them not care that much or they just kill each other during? Well, I don't think, I don't think either of them are too like ridiculous about college sports. I think it was that they were dating. They were both from the same town. They're both from Canton also. 
And I think my mom switched schools her, her junior year to go to be near my dad. Oh, all right. So it, it was love at first early sight. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> All right. So you go down to Florida. Did you have any idea what you wanted to study? I'm always curious. I love sort of the juxtaposition of people who go to school because they want to learn something specific, right? So you go to, you become an accounting major, you become an accountant. But, you know, I went to liberal arts college. So my world was go and learn a bunch of stuff about a bunch of different things. And really none of it's going to be useful to you, but you'll come out sort of well-rounded and then you can figure out what you want to do. What was your position going to Florida? Did you know what you wanted to do or did you just kind of fall? No, I think now at this point, finally close to 50, I finally know what I want to do, which I mean, and then hopefully evolve from here. (laughs) I'd like to retire. Um, That's what I I figured out after all this time. I would like to not work. Yeah, I think I like being an entrepreneur and mentor and the next phase, be it running more companies or investing or something, or even potentially teaching. That's being a mentor. I enjoy that. Part of even running a business. But as a kid, I had no clue. And I basically just wanted to do things that would ensure success. And what I mean by that and why, I think there was a lot of emphasis in my family on achieving, but also just having not being financially stressed. And there was a lot of that from time to time in my house. And now we definitely felt like we were lucky and privileged in a lot of ways. But we also saw struggles where you had something and then suddenly you didn't. And I think there was this my parents' emphasis on getting good grades and finding like a safe, good opportunity. And so for me, I didn't know what that would be. And I thought, you know, so I went to Florida and I originally started with journalism and thought I would be interesting to be like an, in broadcasting or something. Oh, there's a lot of kids too, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then I loved the first communications class, which is more business focused than the business of communications. But when you got into the first like writing classes, I realized basically if you have any problems with grammar, you're not going to make it. Uh, and you need to be like flawless with grammar. Uh, and so definitely at that age, I wasn't. So I just bailed and went to what ended up becoming the easiest for me, which was business and finance was very easy compared to other things for me. I wanted to date because you just mentioned it for the second time. You mentioned your dad was an entrepreneur, but that, uh, you, actually, that you guys had some difficult times and that yeah. the recessions impacted you. What happened? I'm just sort of curious. Yeah. And it isn't anything tragic or that noteworthy. It's just suddenly you're cutting back on expenses, selling cars, you know, no more family vacations. So very much like middle-class issues. But, you know, I think it was the swing of one trip was the Desert Inn in, in Vegas. And then the next one is <laughs> the Renaissance Center in Detroit. That's kind of where the budgets were. And so we still got the vacation. It just wasn't. And you just realize, okay, there's some impact and things that can swing pretty wildly that, you know, it made you realize the importance of sort of a stability and solid income and prudent savings and those kind of things. It's interesting. I mean, it's, I come from, you know, sort of a staunch Roman Catholic family. And I always tell everybody there was two paths. You could go the white collar path. You went the blue collar path. The blue collar path was if you become a fireman or a policeman. And the white collar path was if you become a doctor or a lawyer. Those were our choices. And so when I got into college, I never really I didn't think about what I'd really like to pursue. If I could go back, I'd probably do like theater or music, but I just kind of took the classes that I thought would drive me towards medical school or law school. And for the same things you're talking about though, it's because that was stable. And my parents' position was always, well, you can get that degree and then go do something else. The reality is you don't go get a law degree or a medical degree and then go do something else. You become a lawyer or a doctor. But it is interesting to think about just, it was that overwhelming theme of stability and, and, yeah, um, I think a lot of kids get that right from their parents, and because 
I'm sure I'm preaching something similar to my kids, which is you want something safe for them. You want a higher probability that they'll succeed. But I don't know what the best way to find your right path is. I really don't. Um, you kind of just go with it and sort of follow things that you enjoy doing. Well, then let's start down your path. <laughs> so you go into finance. Did you did you finish with a finance major? Was that what you finance, actually did? Yeah. And what'd you do? What was the first step out of school? So again, towards the stability, I thought, all right, well, I don't know what I can do from here. And, and I, I think had I been able to get a job out of Florida in banking or something, investment banking, I think that would have been a path. The reality is there weren't that many people recruiting, certainly not then, maybe now from Florida. And so I thought, okay, I'm not getting that kind of high level, high pay job. So I said, I'm going to take a year off and I'm going to go to law school and <laughs> put this off a little bit. I thought I was going to get a law school MBA degree. I'm going to get like, what can I most do to guarantee that I'm going to get a high income? So I had those combined degree. So I took a year off and like waited tables and I probably didn't do play that that well. <laughs> I worked in Outback. It wasn't, there are way, I've heard about people that like go to Vail for a year. Like that was yeah, a really Colorado. <laughs> That's a way better way to play it. I did not. I was living in Atlanta with friends and we had, I actually had a great time, but it was not the full like Vail experience. And then you have to write a personal paper, a personal essay to get into law school. I could not think of what. I had decent grades, decent LSAT, but I could not think of anything to say that would make me stand out from everyone else. And so I went. I was going to go a whole other year. And in that time, a friend and I started working on a business plan for a restaurant, Smokey's Mountain Cafe, that we were going to do at his college. And it was sort of a, the style of food was going to be the way Chipotle does it, but with Italian food. So you could pick your pasta, pick your toppings, all that. And it also was a coffee shop, which sort of, would have been early Starbucks days. So I don't think it was a bad concept. And I think we did a decent business plan. The issue is it was like 2 million to do a build out and it would have required my dad co-signing. The guy would have built it if my dad would have co-signed or something. And my dad's like, well, who's going to co-sign for me? So, but it was a nice experience. And I got a job through a brother-in-law working for a software company. And that was really cool. It was restaurant micros. It wasn't that, it was a competitor micros, I think called Compre. And we did the software at Disney World and we did it at McDonald's and Burger King. And so I got to go on site for weeks on end at like Disney World and do that. And it was really cool to see that operation really behind the scenes and seeing the tunnels and all that kind of stuff that you hear about at Disney World. I moved up pretty quickly and as a project manager as right out of school. So it was a ton of responsibility. But then I got a call from my brother who had started this company, Alloy. He had just graduated from business school. I very much looked up to my brother and knew whatever he was going to do was going to be successful. And so I wanted to join him. And I was it was like getting the call up to the majors to join. At the time, I think they only had the three founders and him and I think and a media buyer. And that was it, a clothing buyer. And they basically wanted someone that would be scrappy and just kind of do be a utility player. And so I picked up everything I was doing in Atlanta, left a very fun, like social experience, you know, with all the guys, you know, 23 years old in Atlanta, just yes. a lot of shows and all that kind That's of stuff. Awesome. <laughs> and went to New York and into Manhattan, had never lived there before and just joined the A-League as far as like intense entrepreneurs that were going to raise capital. And I got to see it all up close. And it was brutally hard adjustment for me. And just because of the amount of hours involved, it was, you know, getting up at seven and working until 11 at night, every night, doing all kinds of you know, spreadsheets and that. And within a year and a half after I started, we went public. 
Um, it was the internet gold rush. And we survived as a public company for 15 years. And I never left. I mean, for those 15 years, during those 15 years, I got a lot of different experiences. And we scaled to about, a, I think, like 700 employees or something at its biggest. And it gave me a chance to see how a bigger operation ran. It gave me a chance to see how you scale. But it didn't satisfy the itch to do it on my own uh, because this was very much my brother's you know, startup along with a couple of the founders. And so I had always thought, well, I'd love to do this on my own. And then finally, oh, I had this business plan that I came up with within the public company and I basically brought it to them. And I said, you know, I'd like to work with these schools and I had five contracts in hand, but it was be a couple million dollars of investment. And there's a chance they would have signed off on it were all circumstances the same, we were still public, or they would have pared it down and maybe we'd have gone a little slower. But basically, I brought this couple million dollar investment plan to them, and we had just gotten acquired, so taken private by a private equity group that's in sole investment thesis was, this company's worth more as separate companies. And so we're going to sell all these companies off into five, six different transactions. And the idea of me asking for a couple million dollars to start something new in an area they knew nothing about um, was basically a very simple no. So they gave me, they said, okay, you know, we can either shut this down or we can invest in it for six more months, but after that you're done. And if you want us to keep investing in this, which I think was $100,000 of loss, that's roughly what you might get in a severance. Let's, and so what we're going to do is you're going to waive your right to a severance and we'll fund it for six more months. I will say this wasn't my brother's doing. This was the <laughs> yeah, key. This, this was the private group. And I took the deal. And basically, that was I was able to raise about a million and a half through friends and family, and then another six through a private equity group. And that's how All Campus basically spun out of Alloy in 2012. Wow. So tell everybody who's listening who doesn't know just what All Campus does. Yeah. So All Campus works with colleges to help them take their programs from offline to online. And 10 years ago, that was far more revolutionary than it might sound. Today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but at the time, we had about 500 customers within Alloy that were traditional schools. And they were doing traditional advertising and tr for traditional programs, undergrad programs. But there was all this opportunity with programs that were going online. Mostly it was for-profit schools like the University of Phoenix and Grand Canyon and DeVry that were going online. And I felt like it was a huge opportunity for these traditional schools, but they weren't willing to make the leap. And where they weren't willing to make the leap was on paying for leads, potential students up front. They just, the idea of working with the students that way, being proactive about talking to the students. The schools were used to sending, basically someone said, I'm interested in your school. They're just used to sending a letter. And then if the student said they were interested, they sent another letter. So online is just different. It's a far more service-oriented expectation for the consumer, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, so the light bulb that went off is when someone told me about this company called Embinet, which is now a company bought Pearson acquired. When I heard they worked on a revenue share basis, I knew that would get the schools over the hump. So instead of having to pay, you know, $50 for a prospective student, and then only a couple percent of them actually become students, and then the schools have to do all the management of that, instead, we typically work on a call it a 30, 35% revenue share. So if a there's a $30,000 master's degree. If we take over the program and can scale it to 100 students, we're going to get a percentage of the tuition revenue. That's, I'd say, the simplified version of the model today. So we work on a revenue share basis, really helping them 
So the schools don't have to put all that money up front into building out the program and investing in the potential supply of students. What was it that made you see this opportunity? This is not something that's like, <laughs> to me, it's not something that would be readily apparent, right? I mean, I'm sure you see so it like- we in that space. I mean, not exactly, but what I wanted to do, because we always have, how do you grow the business? How do you grow the business? And at the time, some of the biggest providers in the education marketing space, because that's kind of what I was doing at the- Alloy had evolved in a lot of different ways over the 15 years. And I was in charge of the education group with another guy. And I wanted to grow, become a huge- agency within the education space. And the biggest players back then were like Education Dynamics and a company called Platform. And they were working with lots of schools and finding out ways to buy media. And again, the, the bottleneck was, well, we can't get schools, the kinds of schools we work with, these traditional great schools, we can't get them to increase their budgets. They're not willing to take that risk. They just don't have the appetite. And so that's when, again, the light bulb was for RevShare. It's like, okay, can I get four or five schools that we can go really partner? with the school and really help them grow the program. And, and basically we had a lot of skin in the game. Interesting. So what's the journey been? How big is all campus now? So I think it is like taking a cold shower. It's something that you want to do once, but you probably don't want to do again. It is exhilarating. And it is more interesting part of my history, I think, you know, for my kids and everyone else, but it's not fun. <laughs> There's times when it's really satisfying, but many of the times it's a grind. I mean, you're just trying to get through challenging circumstances with other people, challenging circumstances with your business, challenging circumstances with clients that disappoint you. But sometimes it's fantastic. And looking, it's always, you always look more whimsically, you know, back. I can look back at the last 10 years and forget how hard some of it was. So it's been a very much a slow and steady rise to where we currently are. And we still have a ton of potential. And I'm sort of in the thick of some of the challenges right now, too. We have about 150 employees. So it's been 10 years. So it's just, it's been a slow growth to this size. But I think the part that's really encouraging is we work with some of the best schools out there. We work with 18 of the top 50 schools, UCLA, Columbia, Johns Hopkins, Arizona, University of Florida, my alma mater. So that part's really fun. And we've really built a niche around catering to these most well-recognized brands you trust. And the idea is that we work on a lower revenue share, a lower fee to the school because we leverage their brand equity. And so we're able to be a really low cost provider. Interesting. So you mentioned something that I think is now that I'm in this shit show, right? (laughs) Because, you know, I worked for obviously one startup that cratered, one that was very successful, but I wasn't the founder. I certainly, you know, dug through a lot of shit there. But now having started my own thing, I think everybody looks at it very blissfully, right? They stare at you and say, oh my gosh, you have your own business. That must be the best. I witnessed this with my wife, run her own business for 15 years. But I think there's this perception, Amanda Lannert, I'll give her all credit for this. She used this analogy of everybody watches a rocket ship take off, right? So they're sitting around Cape Canaveral. They watch the rocket ship take off and, and say, that's amazing. I can't believe any, there must be nothing better than that. The astronaut is sitting on, basically a nuclear explosion. It's rumbling, <laughs> praying to God, it doesn't crater and hit the ground. And that's what the entrepreneur feels like. So I've been pretty amazed by people ask me and say, well, this must be so fun. The idea of fun, the concept of fun has never once entered my mind since this started. There is a lot of fear. There is a lot of crawling as hard as you possibly can to go an inch. And I'm interested in the fact that you said that because I think people think, oh, it's gotta be fun. There's nothing fun about this. It's fun once in a while when you win something big and you feel like it can be, you know, a big change for the business. Most of it's a grind. 
but you try to make the most of it because you're sort of trying to create your, you're creating your own culture. You're trying to create a great place for others to work. And we've prided ourselves in that. I think the thing I'm most proud of with the business is we won best place to work in Chicago for mid-sized companies last year when Cranes did it. And so that's great. I'm glad that everyone likes working here. That's really important. It's even part of our strategy because we know for a great place to work, you're going to have higher retention. People stick around longer, which I think is really valuable for our schools. Yeah. And I don't mean to like shit on being a startup or an entrepreneur because you are absolutely right. There are moments, you know, you sign a big deal and it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm probably really poor at celebrating those things. There tends to be like an immediate satisfaction and then I move on. It's kind of right on to what's next. I'm the same. (laughs) When five good things happen, I kind of feel like, yeah, that should have happened. And then when the one bad thing, that's all I care about. I mean, some people probably have a better personality for being an entrepreneur than me. For me, the reason it's a real drag is because I can't turn it off. And I think there's a lot of people like that. And so there's always more I feel like I could be doing to help the business it's really easy to have an idea, I write it down, and then suddenly it's added to the to-do list and I can literally have a couple hundred things. And it's hard to cross them off because they all seem worthy to at least, hey, did I follow up with so-and-so on this idea? Yeah, and I think the best sense of like what it really is like to be an entrepreneur is to ask my kids because I thought they looked up to me, they were proud of me, and I think they are. I thought they would want to become an entrepreneur. I have three girls and none of them have any interest in it because they see how many hours I'm doing this and how I'm always working on it. And sometimes they hear some of the stories about the various people that I work with and I love them all, but they hear like some of the challenges that they're going through and, you know, it's, they want nothing to do with that. (laughs) It's funny you say that they're young enough. I know still that that's probably their perception now. I think the unfortunate or fortunate thing is that you've probably genetically coded this into them, whereas they'll probably start working and at some point just have this inevitable itch that says, I want to go do something for myself. And the reason I say that is because that's my wife, entrepreneurs all through her family, me, my father, entrepreneur for 40 years. I don't know that you can escape it because even if it looks miserable when you're a kid, here's the way I view this. When I view like, hey, you start your own business, what's the benefit of starting your own business? The benefit for me is that there's a finish line. It may be metaphorical, you may never reach it, But the concept to me of working for the rest of my life for somebody else is a completely unacceptable one. So I feel like I'm driving towards the finish line, whether or not it exists or not. And I don't know that you cannot pass this on to your kids if that's what you do. They may see your misery, but (laughs) if you have a successful outcome and you end up teaching, which I'm interested about talking about in a second, how is that not going to be something that they aspire to? Maybe not. I don't know, but it definitely seems like there's a genetic component to this somewhere. Yeah. And I think even without me as an example, I think there's the romance of being an entrepreneur that is going to be out there for anyone. So yes. And if I am lucky enough to have a successful exit from this, that sort of creates a lifestyle that I've been after, I sure that'll be one more reason my kids might be drawn to it. What I really hope, and one of them thinking about psychology and she said, look, will you help me open an office someday? Like I'd run a run a practice. I said, yes, I would love to do that. That would be ideal because that's easy for me, right? We need to call this lawyer. We need to set up this. You know, <laughs> set up the LLC. Yeah. Oh, let me help you with the marketing. Here's, is this what you're saying about yourself? Like those kinds of simple things are, and the work with my kids, that would be super fun. I want to, before I get into what you want to do, if this eventually ends positively, which I clearly believe it will, but you got your MBA and you had mentioned going to law school. People had always told me, hey, go to law school. Once again, this concept of go to law school, then you can decide what you do. A law degree is so useful and you can do a million things. Here's the truth. Most people get a law degree and they practice law. It's not like you Mm -hmm. get a law degree and go do a million different things. 
So I'm curious what your experience was in getting an MBA, what you thought oh, the value of it, of it was. The um, MBA experience was fantastic. It was the first time I ever really loved school. So I was working at Alloy and I was in my, I just gotten married and my wife and I were still in New York. I'd been there five years and she couldn't stand New York City for plenty of good reasons. And I loved New York, but she was over it. You're in the same boat now. Once you're over it, you start to think of all the things you don't like about it. I don't like the traffic. I don't like garbage is always on the street. <laughs> There's a lot of things. And so finally, you're like, all right, fine, we'll go somewhere. And I decided to go and I decided not to quit my job. I thought about going full time quickly on that is if you're going to go full time, it's great for a job pivot. But you know, if you want to stay with your current career and you're not willing to walk away from your salary, part time was a great option. At the time, that's all there was. And now there's online, of course, which is an even, I think, more convenient option. So I basically only applied to two schools in Chicago, uh, Kellogg and, and Chicago. And that was it. I was going to continue working for Alloy and do that. And it was fantastic. I went to Northwestern. The faculty was great. The people I worked with, that's how I met you, actually, through that network. Yeah, it is. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was so pleased with what I learned there. And basically what it did was it made you think much, much bigger. Even though, I mean, I'd worked for a company that all scaled to be public. So my wife and I were a little scrappy and we had a multi-unit in the city. And to me, I was like, okay, maybe we're going to own 10, 15, 20 of these things someday and we'll slowly accumulate them. And so I took a real estate class at Kellogg and it was, it was basically, yeah, if part of your portfolio is real estate and you have, you know, 10% goes in this, you should understand this investment class. So suddenly it was like, let's think way, way bigger than just being, you know, scrappy. And that's just one example, the way the macro microeconomics type questions that you approach. I just really enjoyed that experience. I mean, because it is interesting. People ask me, you know, would you go to law school again? My response is typically, I would definitely go to school at New Orleans again. I don't know that I would go to law school again. You know, it's hard to look back and you say, I am where I am. Good things have happened. This is far from woe is me. But telling people to go to law school is a very difficult thing for me. I don't know that I would suggest it for almost anybody. But I've always viewed getting an MBA as a very different thing. Because well, look where you left your path. I mean, still led you to, you're not practicing law, right? You fought it. And the foundation it gave you was really strong, I assume. I mean, you had a general counsel job and, right? And that's, I mean, I guess sometimes you just have to have a little bit of faith in your path, right? You don't know where the world's yeah. going to take you or why it's going to take you there. And sometimes you just have to ride the wave and see what happens. I don't regret going to law school at all. It has taken me down a very, very interesting path. And like I said, spending three years in New Orleans is worth it, period. Forget about everything else. Forget about everything I learned. Right. Just having that cultural experience was definitely worth it. Because I think people lump JDs and MBAs, and clearly you can get both. They lump them together in sort of the same group. I view them very, very differently. I think they're very different degrees. I think the MBA oh, yeah. is a much more flexible thing that you can sort of carve your own path with. I think people, they view JDs like that. And I think it's a mistake because I do think a lot of people get into law school and then say, well... It's just logical that I go practice law, even though it was never your intention. With an MBA, I think you can sort of do a million different things. So it's good to hear it was a good experience. Is that what is leading you down this path of, because Billy, and for everybody who's oh. listening, Billy is Joe's wife. She had mentioned that you were interested in perhaps teaching and doing that after all campus sells for you know $500 billion and you start the Joe Diamond Foundation and all that good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Is that experience what led you down? What is it that's driving you? Yeah, yeah, I guess in the way that that Kellogg very much makes you think bigger, there is sort of that bridge to like thinking more reasonably. (laughs) What's a base hit? (laughs) All right, then what's the more realistic path? 
there was, I took a couple of entrepreneurship path classes, but I don't feel like any of the faculty really had been there, done that one or two had, but like literally within the Chicago community, here's the places you could go to raise money. Here's, here's the things you need to do set up. Here's the things you should be cautious about. And I have a feeling, first of all, most of the kids that go to that school don't end up becoming entrepreneurs, but those that are really serious about it, I would like to be able to give them helpful guidance because it's, it's, you know, it isn't easy and you should go in with your eyes open. I love the fact you said this because I've always found the concept of an entrepreneurship class borders on ridiculous, right? And certainly if somebody's teaching it, well, I take that back. If somebody is teaching it in theory, like you said, who has not been there and done that, I have absolutely no clue what they can possibly offer you. I really mm-hmm. don't. If it's not somebody who has actually lived this, who probably can start the class with, you should think very carefully about whether or not you want to go down this path before I start teaching about it. But you're right. absolutely right. It is really interesting to think that somebody who's actually done it can teach that class and actually provide the real world yeah. insight into. And there were faculty that had done it, but maybe they did it for five, six, seven years. It's another thing to have done it for 25 years. And then right. now I want to do this because there's all aspects of this. There's, hey, what happens when you get to scale? But what happens before that too? And that first couple of years would be a, probably where I'd focus. Before we get into my, the most fun part of this, which is the lightning round, what's the first premise that you would teach your class? As you're walking in and saying, looking at all these nubile faces who are saying, this is yeah. what I want to do. Look at Joe. He did these amazing things. Meanwhile, your hair has probably turned completely gray. You have bags mm-hmm. under your eyes. <laughs> You've got a walker because you can't take the pain that you've suffered through over the years. What would you tell them? What would you tell them as they enter this path? Yeah, just basically bring a lot of energy because you're going to have a lot of setbacks and you've got to know you really want this. And I wouldn't discourage people from it. It's just having your eyes open about how hard it is. And that basically you're not likely to enjoy it day in, day. I enjoyed the 15 years at Alloy more than the 10 years doing this. But I bet you when I tell my story, I'll have flipped it. That running was the most exciting, exhilarating thing I could have done. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. It's Once again, I look at this as is the world of people who view it in this sort of, I don't know, 50,000 foot way and think it just, it must be the most exciting thing in the world. And I'm coming off way too negative on this <laughs> because yeah. I am excited about what I do and I'm excited to be working for myself and I'm excited about the team and I'm excited about what we can potentially accomplish. But it really is like, you have to keep that vision. Otherwise the day-to-day is, it can be really painful. But you're right. I would never discourage anybody who who I think has the gumption to go down this path. I would never discourage anybody. I think both of us are <laughs> being re- pragmatic and realistic. Pragmatic. About it. Yeah. <laughs> the reality is I wouldn't pick a different path. Like I love what I do, but you better love it because it's a lot of work. Yeah. This has been the most liberating, if not the most difficult professional experience I've had by far. Yeah. Because it is, there are benefits to saying you make your own schedule. And, <laughs> and there's a lot of fun parts to it. And it's neat to see a group of people come together and grow something. Um, yeah, and rally around an idea like, hey, this is something and this is going to make the world better for this reason. And they're helping mold and shape that vision. But you're dealing with smart, strong people that have their own opinions about how that vision should come together. And so that's the real struggle is getting everyone on the same page. That I think, and once you can though, it's everyone agrees with the where you're going, but the question is how. And so getting everyone rowing in the same direction, that's the struggle. But it's also when it happens, when it works, it's really, really exciting, really fun. Super cool. All right. Well, lightning round. So this is the most fun part. I'm going to ask you a question. Just answer it off the top of your head. Don't think about it deeply. 
But this is what I found in doing these now is, is this is the most interesting thing. Because number one, I thought when I first would ask these questions, I thought people would sort of give like flippant, funny, off the cuff answers. And instead, I found that the answers are actually a lot deeper because the questions are not deep questions, right? But the answers, interestingly, have gotten a lot deeper than I thought they would. But it's really neat to compare folks and just see what they think when asked sort of these very basic questions and what the answers are. So I'm going to give you basic answers. <laughs> I think you're going to be surprised. Um, exactly. Everybody says that. And then you get these answers and you're like, wow, it's not nearly as basic as I think the answers people believe they'll give. But we'll give it a shot and okay. see how you do. So favorite movie and why? Pulp Fiction. It just blew my mind at the time. I love Quentin Tarantino. I like surprise. I like things that are, you know, unexpected dialogue, just clever. I just, I loved that movie. See, uh, but the, a re recent favorite movie though, and I heard the new Top Gun movie is good, so I can't wait. Me to see too. That. I want to go see it. <laughs> the recent family favorite, like, it just blew us all away. Was Coda? That oh, was. Oh my god! See, you've already answered in a way. I figured when I would ask this question, the immediate answer would be The Hangover, you know, Animal House or something, right? Which they're great movies. I'm not knocking them, but I figured it would be something really simple, like, oh, it's so stupid. I laughed. Blah, blah. <laughs> Every time somebody answers with something, there's a reason, right? So Coda was amazing. And actually, yeah. I mean, I God, cried I like a baby. Yeah, right. Oh, but my son watched it, he was probably four, and uh -huh. he was engrossed. Like, absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah, that's it's a great movie. But Pulp Fiction's a great movie too. All right, favorite book and why? Candidly, I read mostly nonfiction. So a book that I most enjoyed that was fiction from beginning to end was Life of Pi. I just was super engrossed in that story. It was so well told, great twist. That's the reason I enjoyed it. All right, the most I difficult the point runner would probably be the second. I'm with you. I read mostly nonfiction stuff. I'm absolutely it's just business. Yeah. Like, the Steve Jobs biography was fantastic. The shoe runner, I think that's what it's called, about Phil Knight. I don't I think I have the name wrong. But anyway, that was great. Yeah, I love that stuff too. Fictional stuff, I'm unless the story's fantastic, it doesn't hold me. That's the right. amazing thing is nonfiction is the stuff that you can't make up, right? If, <laughs> if you didn't have your job though, do you feel like you could enjoy nonfiction? I don't know. That's a good question. I can't I, remember. I didn't feel like there's something better I could be doing than entertaining myself right now with a story is the issue. But when I'm reading nonfiction, like about, you know, Bill Gates or Elon Musk or yeah, I just find or Steve Jobs, I just find those stories fascinating. Yeah. Well, and you feel like you're learning something that's yeah. you know, oh, maybe directly yeah. applicable to your life. Yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question. I wish I hope to God at some point I have enough time to actually answer these questions for myself. <laughs> but yeah, right now I'm not plowing through a lot of fiction books, I just, I wouldn't even know where to start or how I would be thinking just like you, I'd be thinking I should be spending my time doing something else other than <laughs> reading this book. All right. The most difficult of all of these, your favorite person and why? My wife. That's too easy. And, the then, only, and I mean, <laughs> it's the only right answer, right? Not even trying to be cute. Like there's just no question about that. There's like, it's just easily. Yeah. There's a reason you choose her to go on this journey together and it's, there's no comparison. I mean, just completely without her, I would be directionless, really. Yeah, I mean, that's sometimes I ask this and say, other than your immediate family, to make it more difficult. <laughs> but that's the right answer. What's your biggest pet peeve? I don't know. There are a lot of things that bug me. <laughs> I don't know that I have one that just I can think of off the top of my head that's the biggest thing that bugs me. Can you give me an example of a pet peeve that people have shared? I'll tell you if it. Yeah. So this is another question that I asked, and I thought you would get sort of like, 
you know, corny, funny, off the cuff, really quick answers. Because for me, the thing that drives me crazy, and anybody who's listening to this probably say he's going to say that again, is for me, it's chewing people who chew with their mouth open. It drives me fucking nuts. It drives me nuts. But I've gotten a lot of other answers that were like, you know, my biggest pet peeve is dishonesty, right? Where somebody, where it's actually been expressed. So it's not like, Somebody's not saying that in just theory to sound intelligent. The idea is like, oh, well, I thought there was this person that I really trusted and, you know, they did something and it completely showed their true colors to me. And that's something that I can't. So it can range through all sorts of yeah, things. I, I don't like dishonesty. I don't like people who chew with their mouth open. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I think maybe more than most people, I don't like when people are lazy and make bullshit excuses that I'm the opposite of that. And so that probably bugs me the most. See, that one's, that's perfect, right? And that makes perfect sense because I'm a thousand percent with you. Just get your shit done. Stop yeah. talking about other shit. I think I know the answer to this one, given what you said, but in 10 years, you'll be doing what? Well, I'll either still be running this business, to be honest, that may be the case. And by then, I think I will love it. I sincerely, I love it now, but I think I'll be to the point where it's, you know, a steady 35, 40 hours a week. And I'm more of a mentor CEO type, if that's what I'm doing. Or I'll be doing, I guess, investing slash private equity side. I don't know that I'll seriously be, you know, a faculty member and actually teaching, but I could see doing some adjunct work on a class or two. So that's realistically where I hope to be in 10 years. All right. Well, let's go back to movies for a second. If somebody was going to play you in a movie, who would it be and why? The best answer I've gotten here was Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> because, so this is you, Sherlock. I don't know who would actually say Zach Galifianakis in a positive way. <laughs> yeah, I like him. He could pass for me. The only name I can think of is because I've been told I look like him, but I don't think I do anymore is Tony Hawk. But he's not much of an actor. So he's the only celebrity I can think of that kind of looks like me. And I, yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> he does. Look I hope like not like Woody Allen or Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> that, that might be it. <laughs> Well, let's take Woody Allen out of the... I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he's a little too old, but yeah. <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg, I mean, he's a good actor. He's made yeah. some really good movies. He's got range. <laughs> yeah, he's got some range, yeah. All right, if somebody handed you $10 million, are you done? I would put the company in good hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you just gave the best answer I've heard yet. The most diplomatic answer, the best answer. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I think for me, that's true, right? If you give me the opportunity to ride into the sunset, I'm riding into the sunset. Let's, yeah. let's be honest. And everyone has a different bar. And 10 for some of the listeners is going to sound like, like a ridiculous amount of money. And for some, that's going to sound like not enough. And to me, that seems plenty for what I want to have in, you know, it's basically it's sort of independence. Yes. That's, that's the number one thing. The simplest way to put it is not needing to work for a salary. That yeah. would be bliss. Yeah. I mean, that's so if Pete listens to this one, Pete Caden said, you know, the biggest value that his wealth has given him is freedom. And the rest is like, it's not about buying cars and boats and houses. And it's the ability to do with your time what you want to do with your time. And that's for me, I mean, $10 million, that's more than enough money for, but we've had some folks who said, no, that's, that's not their interest. They'd rather keep going. And, you know, for me, yeah, I'm into the sunset. I'm a volunteer firefighter and Owning a bike, yeah, like you, you, which is on the uh, what is it? the ski, ski patrol. patrol? Absolutely, back to ski patrolling. All right, last one. The most important trait that you look for in people doesn't matter if business, personal, whatever it is. Authenticity. That's pretty easy. Like basically, if I think someone is sincere, that's key. And then I would say quickly thereafter, like intelligence, and I mean that like emotional intelligence. It's that back to authentic that they're not making stuff up. That they basically 
are interacting with me in an authentic way that I can trust and believe. That's number one. I think that's a perfect fit. Well, that's it. Joe, CEO of All Campus, Joe Diamond, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Hopefully, I keep telling everybody as this grows and if we get enough listeners, we'll come back and revisit and do this again over new topics. But I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Thanks so much, Colin. Nice talking to you.